Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we celebrate Black in Physics Week, and we also explore the connections between climate justice and open access in scientific publication. October 24th to 28th is Black in Physics Week, which is an annual event that's dedicated to celebrating black physicists and revealing a more complete picture of what a physicist looks like. To celebrate this event, Physics World, together with Physics Today, is publishing a series of essays by black physicists. And Physics World's Margaret Harris has caught up with two of the essayists. The theme of this year's Black in Physics Week is finding joy in the diverse black community. Here to celebrate that joy and diversity with us are Larissa Palethorpe and Joyful Manduli. Larissa is a PhD student in astrophysics at the University of Edinburgh in the UK, and Joyful is a PhD student in high energy physics at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> All right, Larissa, I'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about, about who you are and what your research is about. Um, so I'm a second year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh, and my PhD is actually also joint with UCL in London. Um, I have a second supervisor there, and I work on the characterization of small exoplanets. So we've discovered about 5,000 plus exoplanets these days. Um, but if you were to plot them on an orbital period radius diagram, there's something that's called the radius valley. Um, so we don't discover exoplanets of a certain size between one point five and two Earth radii approximately, and nobody really knows why. Um, there are theories, but we need to narrow down those theories. So I work on the discovery of new exoplanets around this size range and also characterizing their systems so that we can further work out and add data to the theories and narrow down and see actually what what causes this issue. Is it bias? Is it the way planets form? Um, so yeah, it's a lot of coding. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's interesting. So presumably there is, you said that it's possibly bias and possibly something in the way that planets form. Um, what's the, what would be the source of bias in, in this sort of exoplanet gap? So the way we detect exoplanets, because they're rocky or they're gaseous, they don't really emit their own light. Obviously, Earth emits light because we have us and we have electricity, but generally you can't detect light on other planets. So the way we observe them usually is we'll stare at a star for a very long time and hope the planet passes in front of it. And that causes a dip in the light curve. And because of that, we're more prone to discovering planets with really short orbital periods because there's obviously so many stars um, and we don't have the telescope capacity to stare at them, all of them, all the time. So planets that have short periods, like six days, so on, on these planets, a year is six days, we're more likely to discover, um, which means they're closer in to their host star. And so things like that may contribute to the planets we've discovered and why there's certain bias of the types of planets we've discovered. Interesting. All right, Joyful, um, I understand you work on detectors for the ALICE experiment at CERN. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Hi. Um, so actually, I'm doing analysis um, from the data taken with the ALICE experiment here at CERN. Uh, so basically what I'm, my research is focusing on is basically trying to find the correlation between um, the heavy flavor production as well as uh, the event multiplicity. So we're trying to find how hard and soft mechanisms um, uh, correlate with one another. And how did you get interested in that field? 
um, CERN in South Africa, we have the Atlas and Alice experiments that are also part of um, CERN. So every every year we typically had um, meetings where all of the experiments would come together in South Africa and then we'd just share our research. So one of the professors who is in the Alice experiments uh, gave a seminar once at our university and that sort of kind of sparked my interest. And then from there, I'd have conversations with her throughout the years. And then I eventually found myself joining the group. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So, you know, Joyful and Larissa, I've, I've read your essays now, and they're available on the Physics World website by the time this, this podcast airs, um, about your experiences. And one common thread in both of your essays is you're both the first in your family to attend university. What's that been like? Did you get a lot of encouragement? How did you sort of inspire you to go ahead and do that? Um, yeah, I would say definitely a lot of her encouragement, especially from my mum. But I think it comes with its own drawbacks in that no one really knows about the application process um, or often like who to talk to or things such as I, re- I recently spoke to a professor who talked about kind of internships and how you can just approach professors when you're an undergrad and ask for them. But the, if you don't have a parent who's maybe gone through the academic field, you don't know that that's an option. There are lots of hidden biases that may may not be visible to people who have had parents who have gone to university. Um, so that's definitely something that's been a drawback. But yeah, everyone in my family is really pleased and really proud and really excited. Um, so it's nice to be the first, but there are pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. Joyfully, have anything you want to add to that? Um well, for me, because I have three older siblings and none of them actually did go to university. So it was the first that I was going all the way to an actual higher education system. Um, but then because over the years, I'm the only girl in the family as well. I've always been different. So me going to university was just one of those things that I do differently from the rest of the family as well. So it was also fine. Um my family, very supportive, at least the undergraduate part of it, they understood what was happening. When I started in honors and then I was like master's and then PhD, they're like, oh, so you're still in school. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really understand what's going on, but they're very supportive about it. When I come home frustrated saying, I don't understand why this is happening. They're like, yeah, we're angry with you, but they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> but yeah, so I got a lot of support from my family. Um, some people still don't understand what I'm doing because I've been in school forever. But yeah, otherwise, the more immediate close people understand and they're very supportive. And that's all that matters for me. <laughs> Who has helped you sort of guide yourself through this, this, un- this unfamiliar landscape? You know, as you had, had good professors or, you know, good friends or how, how have you found your way? Um, for me, it's definitely been good professors. Um, I, one standout professor to me was my third year undergrad supervisor for a research project I did. Um, she was the one who suggested I do a PhD and then really guided me through that process. She suggested universities to apply to for the area I was interested in. She wrote great recommendation letters and she did mock interviews with me. And without her there, I, I don't think I would have done this at all. And then that kind of support, I've been lucky enough to meet several people after that. So I, then I had internship supervisors who kind of wrote to PhD supervisors about me and reached out. And then for a while when I was applying for a PhD, it didn't look like I was gonna get one at all. Um, I was kind of on the waiting list for one at UCL and the supervisor who, if I did eventually get a place, I would have been, um, would have been my supervisor, um, wrote to me about other universities. And then he also went out of his way to approach people for me, even though he didn't have to do that. Like he already had a student. And then in the end, what ended up happening is I ended up getting an offer from Edinburgh. And then 
I ended up also getting an offer from UCL. And then when I wrote to UCL to say, thank you for all your support, like you've been amazing in this process, but I'm going to accept Edinburgh. Um, they said, can we email Edinburgh and ask to share you? essentially <laughs> um so that's why i have supervisors at both institutions and so it's people who've taken a really keen interest and helped me otherwise i just, i couldn't have done this on my own i don't think yeah so yeah, yeah. very lucky joyful you got anything you want to add to that yeah i know um just as she said i had a lot of support from supervisors as well especially because in my family no one's in the academic space so um, I had a few people who kept telling me like, no, you should definitely stay in academia. At the time in second year, I was just like, what? I don't understand what you're talking about. But then as you go, um, grow older, third year and then honors, you start understanding what they do and how they go about it. So um, the School of Physics for me had was a really good support structure in terms of supporting us in terms of going into doing postgraduate. And then I also had a couple of friends who were also interested in going down the same line. So I would also talk to them if because they clearly understood better what was going on than I did. And then I'd ask questions like, so how do you go about this? And then, yeah, so both supervisors and I also had a few friends that were in the field and were interested in post, uh, pursuing postgraduate studies. That like it was easier to just navigate through the space. I mean, mm. some things we still learn every day, but, you know, survived. <laughs> So so what do you know now about the academic environment that you really wish you'd known when you started? You know, this is your chance to sort of give some information as a, as a good auntie in academia down to, to current students. I'd say don't be afraid to send emails to people you don't know. Um, that, that's how a lot of collaborations are formed. That's how you get your name out in the field. The worst thing they can do is not apply to you. Um, yeah. And that happens to tons of people. So that's not embarrassing at all. Um, and that's one thing I think should really be hammered home throughout undergrad, throughout PhD. Just don't be afraid to reach out. More often than not, people are willing to support you. Um, and that might not be completely evident, but um, take take that risk and put yourself out there. That's what I'd say. Joyful, you're nodding. You're nodding to that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's because I still go through the exact same thing. Every time I have to email someone, I'm just like, I have serious anxiety. I type a whole email, wait 20 minutes before I can click send. So <laughs> I am still going through that. Even though I know they're very helpful, I still struggle with just communicating. And then after that, I'm just like, I don't know why I was so scared. But then, yeah. Um, and then the other thing they don't tell us is how difficult it is to write. Oh, my goodness. Writing is a pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah oh, that's just painful but otherwise I agree with what you say don't be afraid to send emails and um, communicate with people they've turns out that people just want to help you in the science and physics space yeah 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 I think it's a really common theme that older professors want to give back anyway um they they want to make the field easier for younger people so yeah. That's nice. That's really nice. So, Larissa, your essay for Black and Physics Week is called Finding Joy in an Alien World. And there's a great line in it where you compare your exoplanet research with being a black scientist. You say that being in this not very diverse environment of academic science is sometimes seems like setting foot on one of these hostile worlds. What are some things that have helped you to survive and thrive in that setting? You know, what's, what's been the equivalent of your oxygen pack and a pressure suit that, that helps you Get, keep going i would say building a support system is really important um like you wouldn't just go and step foot on mars you wouldn't be able to breathe you'd have people back at nasa guiding you you'd have all the equipment there ready helping you so having a support system to lean on i think is really important and as a black physicist that sometimes isn't 
readily available. Um, I went to quite an interesting seminar when I first started my PhD that talked about how kind of the typical physicists, so like maybe white men, um, a lot of their friends are the people they work with. And this isn't just true for physics, it's true for a lot of areas of the world, like banking and things like that. Um, so it means that when they have problems and when they have qualms, they can talk to their friends at work. And it actually means because they're such good friends, they may be looked at first for promotions or they looked at first generally for everything else. And whereas actually, if you come from a minority and a not so diverse field, you have to find your support system elsewhere, outside of work, um, because it can be work that drains you. So I would say finding a support system, having to seek one out isn't easy, but once you have a solid one, it's really what keeps you going. People who can kind of understand when you want to complain and vent and laugh along with you and just be there as a and here to listen is really important because um, keeping everything to yourself, I think you'll end up imploding eventually. So that's what I would say is most important to me. Mm -hmm. And you've um, one thing you mentioned in your essay is that you've got involved with an organization, a fairly new organization called the Black at Lab family. Do you want to explain what that is and how that's helped you? It was um, a bit of a random one, actually. I got a I got an email from a professor here at Edinburgh saying that she'd heard about this summer school by the Blackett Lab family and they'd had a dropout and it was like two weeks away and she'd seen a tweet about it and I don't have Twitter so she sent me the tweet and was like I think you'd be great for it like you should apply um, and so the Blackett Lab family was is a um, kind of organization started at Imperial um, by a black professor there who I also think has a essay in this week's series um, and he basically saw that there wasn't a lot of black physicists in the department in terms of undergrads and wanted to find a way to band together again to build a support system of people who are like each other and will face similar experiences and barriers um and so that's how it kind of started i think it started with him and maybe two undergrads now obviously as more undergrads have cycled through imperial as minorities they've joined and they've expanded to other universities as well they've got their own website so you can just join and they have kind of meetups and dinners I think about once a month and then this summer school um was the first one they've done and it was three days I think and it was just a series of seminars and workshops run by the Blackett Lab family and they had a panel of black physicists who not had not necessarily stayed in academia but also gone into industry giving their advice which was really helpful to hear and also really interesting to visualize black professors I was never taught by a black professor when I was in undergrad in physics I don't see them in Edinburgh <laughs> um really so they're kind of rare so to see people who've gone through the system and survived it um is something that I think is unparalleled uh so it was a really good week of kind of learning about other fun things as well how to get into science communication how to write your cv uh but yeah they're a really great organization I'd recommend looking them up to anyone who hasn't heard of them and Joyful, you want to comment about your support network, the things that have helped you survive and thrive? <laughs> Been a part of almost a little bit of everything over the years. Um, so at some point, I was part of the Black Women in Science organization in South Africa, where they basically just promoting women in science, just overall science, not physics specifically, because um, we lack support in the sciences field as women. So that organization, I was part of it for a year um, as a fellow where they gave us training in terms of how to write a proposal, how to apply for grant funding, 
And also because not everyone wants to stay in academic space, they also taught us how to write a um, proposal to get funding to such your own company. So they were equipping us with skills to basically thrive as um, black women in science. And then uh, I'm also part of the Women in Physics in South Africa uh, committee. I am the secretary this year uh, until 2024, I think. <laughs> um, so that also is more uh, focused on the physics field. So we basically try to just also build a network of women in science, I mean, in physics um, and provide so all sorts of supports. We try to have a mentorship program going on and we also celebrate the female physicists in South Africa and also just also trying to uh, encourage young kids because, I mean, when I was in high school and primary school, I didn't know one could possibly have a career in physics. So we're trying to expose kids as well out there at a younger age that, look, physics is something that you can possibly follow as a career as well. Uh, and then I also had fellow postgraduate students who are obviously not in the physics field, chemists and biology and everywhere. We, we just like a little group of friends where we just come together while well, we used to come together every once in a while and just you know vent if we have to or just drink our problems away but we just got together and yeah helped try to support each other but yeah so mostly fellow postgraduate students and then also the few um, forums that I mentioned that I was part of where they provide and support in terms of surviving uh, postgraduate and joyful. I want to pick out something in your essay as well, because you write very movingly about a point where you, well, you, you say you lost your joy in physics for a while. Um, yeah. What caused that and how did you get out of it? Um, <laughs> so uh, it was, I don't know if it, I would blame it on the pandemic or not. Who knows what would have happened had we not had the pandemic. But then, um, so because I had to, like, um, before starting the analysis I'm working on with Alice, I was working on testing materials that go into detectors. That's why it's, like, detector-related uh, things. I was testing materials that go into detectors. So part of my whole research was to build my whole, uh, own experimental setup. And everything was working at some point, and then we had the pandemic. No one was going into the lab for a while. And then when I came back, nothing was working, <laughs> like nothing. And then also we had the support staff that wasn't there on a daily basis. So it was very difficult to get someone to like help me build it back up again. And then we also worked with collaborators from uh, Dubna as well. So because we had the pandemic, they couldn't send my samples back into South Africa so I can actually continue uh, doing my analysis on them. And reach out to other universities. They had same problems. Either the instruments are not working and they're waiting until... Uh, people can start traveling so they can have mechanics to come look at them or something was just not working out. So I just started panicking a lot. <laughs> and then uh, I was just like, I'm done. I'm giving up. I'm quitting. And then uh, that is roughly the same time the, uh, the my current supervisor right now, she actually reached out to me just checking in saying, hi, how are you doing? How's your PhD going? Because she was interested in me having me do a postdoc with her. So she was always constantly checking in to see how things go in. So I was just like, oh no, things are falling apart. I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> and then she had a chat with me saying, maybe are you interested in doing something that wouldn't require you to be in a lab? Um, so maybe you can do analysis with us. And then that will also be a nice introduction into uh, doing further things like a postdoc with us as well. So I was like, I have nothing to lose, I might as well. 
Um, so yeah, and then I agreed to do it. It was a very big change for me because I went from being inside a lab, touching instruments to just sitting in front of a computer and just coding. So yeah, and I cried a lot most days because I'm like, I don't know if I can even do this. And then the code would stop right. And I'm like, how do I fix it? How do I fix it? <laughs> but here I am now. I've finally submitted. Um, so I'm just waiting for examiners and then I'll see how I move on into the next step but then yeah it was it was it was very big decision moving from one phd project where i'd spent so many years working on it and then just completely abandoning it to do something completely different that i have zero knowledge on and yeah so i had a lot of catching up to do at the same time finishing so i was learning while writing at the same time it was just very stressful but yeah i've survived it you've come out the other end Yes, I'm still smiling. <laughs> yeah. Larissa, you were also smiling during that. So I was laughing knowingly about the code issues. Have you had a, yeah. low, a low point that you've had to get through as well? I will say that the crying about code never really goes away. <laughs> there's, always, there's always a problem. Um, yeah, no, I think coding is a battle in itself, to be honest. But at least, you know, we're all on the same level playing field when it comes to it. When you spend hours debugging and you still can't find the problem, that's when it really pushes you to your limit. But um, still, it's satisfying when you get there eventually. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, Joyful, you say you're probably heading on for a postdoc now that you've come to the end of your PhD. Um, yes. So, what what was your postdoc going to be in? What do you think you're going to do? Um, I because I just recently joined this group. I feel like I want to stay a bit longer with them because, like I said, the past years for me has just been trying to get as much information in my brain as possible so I don't know what I know right now like I genuinely have no idea what I know so um, staying within the group would uh, help me solidify my basics so I can say that I'm confident that I actually know what I'm doing and what I am actually working on so yeah um, for now I'm just hoping that they will take me as a postdoc in the group <laughs> and so you're about halfway through your PhD roughly you know what's next for you yeah, I've still got about two and a half years left. Um, so I'm unsure right now um, whether I want to stay in academia or industry. I'm not ruling anything out, but we'll see how I feel at the end of the PhD. I think after I've written a thesis, I might feel differently. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> All right. Well, Joy from Maduli and Larissa Palethorpe, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And you can read Larissa's and Joyful's essays on the Physics World website, together with essays by Louise Edwards, John Johnson, Mark Richards, who is the founder of the Blackett Lab family that Larissa mentioned, and Wesley Sims, all part of Black and Physics Week. That was Physics World's Margaret Harris in conversation with Joyful Meduli and Larissa Palethorpe. This is also International Open Access Week, with scholarly publishers and researchers worldwide celebrating the benefits of making scientific research more accessible to everyone. This year's theme is Open for Climate Justice. And in this interview, the communications expert Rosalind Donald of the American University in Washington, D.C., chats with IOP Publishing's Faye Holst about the study of climate justice and about her research on how different communities in Miami, Florida, are experiencing and responding to the climate crisis. Donald also talks about the importance of open access publishing for climate justice.
Good afternoon. Welcome, Rosalind Donald. Um, Thank you. You're so assistant much. professor in communications at the American University. And today we will be discussing uh, Open Access Week, which this year uh, has been themed Open for Climate Justice. And you have done some research on climate justice in the Miami region. And uh, you have published with us on that topic. And we would really like to hear from you. What does climate justice actually mean? Climate justice to me is, is related to thinking about environmental justice. And that's a, a theme that was pioneered to really um, draw attention to the ways in which certain communities enjoy much less access to environmental amenities. And then also the designated as sacrifice zones. Uh, so they um, may experience much more pollution from industrial facilities, uh, which are more likely to be cited near them. There was a lot of um, scholarship that came out of the United States looking at the effects of segregation on black communities and then other communities of colour, but then also we can see it as a, as a global phenomenon. And I think when we're looking at climate justice, that really helps us to frame it because it's a it, it draws attention to the fact that um, the most vulnerable people, often the people who have done the least to contribute to climate change are experiencing its worst effects, but it also highlights histories of exploitation of people and nature. There has been a tendency to look at climate change in um, more of an ahistorical way, um, or to look at it sort of beginning with the Industrial Revolution. But if you um, connect it with these histories of exploitation, then you can see that climate change is more of a symptom of histories of exploitation than you know, simply a standalone phenomenon that has to do with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's um, a, a through-going um, symptom of um, global systems of um, exploiting people in nature. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a serious problem. And we see this inequality of um, who's affected by climate change throughout uh, the world, but we also see it in research. Can you expand on that? Inequality is baked into academia itself. You know who gets um, who gets to uh, be a researcher. You know we talk about a leaky pipeline of of um, you know grad students going through to um, becoming practitioners, and I think that that's also um, a huge problem. Um, the types of knowledge that are um, valued in academia um, aren't always. You know, Local knowledge is not always valued, but it's exploited. You know, there's a real danger that you know you're working with a community and um, you're know, using their knowledge, but you know there may be community members who feel like they they haven't been cited, who um, you know their their knowledge is being used, but they're not recognised. And then finally, um, you know, yes, access to the research itself, which um, can help communities to advocate for themselves. As I found, and I think that, you know, a lot of people find when they're working um, in the space of environmental justice is that the communities know very well what's happening to them and they know why. The, the thing that researchers can uh, contribute to it is often um, producing knowledge in a format that is accepted in different forums where uh, sort of frontline communities may be more marginalised. What can we do as listeners to support a fairer distribution of the burden of the climate crisis? I know it's a broad question. I mean, because it's such a through-going problem, there are many routes to think about sort of greater fairness and justice. You can sort of participate in many ways. You can join local environmental justice groups. 
I also think sort of thinking beyond um, the boundaries of what environmentalism has constructed to be nature, I think is really important. So thinking about nature in the city, thinking about nature in um, communities that that have been, you know, sort of cast as urban or, or polluted. I think sometimes there's a, a tendency to almost count them out. And so, you know, if you are part of an environmental group, it's, um, you know, asking, you know, what's being done to contribute to environmental justice. And I think that, you know, you, you can almost do that in, in any capacity. It's something that we may think about only in one kind of category, but, but you know, you could be asking your local cricket club, um, you know, what it's doing to contribute to environmental justice. And they're the kinds of conversations that can start to spark connections for people uh, that may not otherwise be obvious and um, help us to think more holistically about how thinking about our relationships with nature can um, kind of come out of the silo and actually um, you know, th- think about our, you know, our existence as, as um, community members more yeah. generally. And that sort of brings us to the next question. In your research, you've looked at how um, narratives are shaped around climate justice or about climate policy. And what have you found? Mm-hmm. What are the most powerful elements that shape these narratives? Uh, so with the um, research that I did in Miami, um, I noticed that people were talking about climate change in very, very different ways, uh, sometimes almost at, completely at cross purposes. And um, one of the, the biggest divides that I noticed was down the lines of segregation. And so it, it also has to do with people's experiences of environmental injustice, because environmental injustice also has to do with the fact that, you know, at a local level, some people experience um, greater environmental quality at the expense of other um, of other communities. And then that also connects with um, you know, where people are living. So um, at the time, you know, sort of in the 1920s, 30s, when these kind of displacements um, began, it, it was um, you know, wealthy communities wanting to take over the central business district, but also um, denying access um, to coastal areas. Miami is very segregated, but you see um, most white communities are um, on, the, on the shoreline. Um, and and black communities are um, on higher ground inland. Um, and then in Miami, you see then uh, Latinx communities kind of expand south and west. And um, these areas all experience climate change in different ways. The sort of high ground historic black communities that had experienced displacement, people were talking about climate gentrification, which is sort of a relatively new concept. Um, but it has to do with researchers noticing that house prices were going up proportionately more in high ground areas uh, than um, on the shoreline. And that also very much connects with you know, this historic experience of um, environmental injustice. And so people are connecting that history to the climate problem. But when you speak to officials, um, you know, they, they're thinking potentially more about sea level rise um, and um, problems that um, are sort of um, increasing now and affecting perhaps um, higher income areas. Climate justice in itself as a discipline is actually relatively new. You know, how do you describe the climate justice scholarly community? Um, well, I think that it's it's new in that, that there's a, um, a coalescing now around thinking about climate justice, but um you know i would say that this is a field that's pioneered by um scholars and practitioners in marginalized communities and that it's 
you know, that focus on justice is essential to orient scholars like me who are kind of coming into this area to, to really follow that lead um, and also think about you know, climate justice research as research that's you know, designed to serve the communities that we're um, highlighting. So, yeah, I think that the climate justice research is an interdisciplinary and hopefully transdisciplinary area that um, focuses on um, the unequal distribution of uh, climate risks. And that is rooted in the communities that are most affected and orients itself around serving those communities. If you had a choice, would you publish your research open access or would you publish your work not open access if you had the choice? Um, I would always publish my work um, as open access, um, given the given the choice, um, because it's enables you know anybody who is working on um, environmental justice working with different communities to be able to um, access that research without necessarily having um, a subscription to a journal and so you know for my part I think there are many different ways that um, you know I as a researcher can try to you know, make my work accessible I also try and write it as clearly as I possibly can for example and I think it's also important to think about different kinds of formats that you can publish in as well, um, you know, not just as a journal article, but also, you know, how can you kind of distill the, the main points of your research and make them as accessible as possible. But you know, making sure that it's available to people, not just in Miami, but hopefully all over the world that um, are trying to um, think about how to have these conversations about climate change Um at the local level where, you know, policy and, and governance is now really emerging as a necessity because um, communities are experiencing uh, more and more extremes now. And we find that those extremes are unequally distributed. And so I think that you know, being part of the open access movement is really exciting. And I hope that it also allows us to um, think about new ways of doing scholarship that are community led. That was Rosalind Donald in conversation with Faye Holst. IOP Publishing has created a sustainability collection of papers that describe research that's related to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You can find a link to that collection on the IOP Publishing website. Just look for the headline, Celebrating Open Access Week 2022, Open for Climate Justice. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Larissa Palethorpe, Joyful Meduli, Margaret Harris, Rosalind Donald, and Faye Holst for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week with a program that's devoted to the commercialization of quantum technologies. Physics World.